Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mari Judah. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me now to the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus to chapter 25. We now come to a major shift that is getting ready to take place in the book of Exodus. The Exodus, like its title, has been taking us out of Egypt and bringing us to the mountain. And in the last two portions, we have heard the commandments of God. And all of a sudden, the book of Exodus is now going to make a shift. And the topic that will be from here on out through the end of chapter 40 for the next 15 chapters is going to be the subject of the tabernacle. That tent of meeting that was made in the wilderness where the presence of God dwelled with the children of Israel. I must tell you that there's a rather interesting mystery at this point. And the best way to illustrate that to you is to uh, give you a short example of something for us to watch. And that is, we know the sequence of events that took place. And it's not necessarily being presented here. We know that if we study the whole Torah, that right as Moses went up on the mountain now to receive the tablets, and by the way, those are the final words that is said in the previous portion, that Moses now goes up on the mountain to receive the tablets of the Lord, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. We know what happened because we've studied the Torah before. He is up there on that mountain. Joshua is halfway up on the mountain waiting to tend to Moses. He has left Aaron and Hur in charge of the children of Israel down at the base of the mountain. And this is the time when the children of Israel will grow impatient with Moses coming back and they will make a golden idol. They will make the golden calf and they will sin against the Lord. And Here's the book of Exodus, which has been giving us all the detailed accounts, step by step by step, and all of a sudden, Moses stops telling that part of the story. It's actually in the book of Deuteronomy and other places that we learned that the actual sequence of events was that we heard the Ten Commandments. Moses went up on the mountain. He recounted back the commandments to us. He goes back up to receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and the children of Israel then sin. And what this book does is it skips that and immediately goes into the instruction about the pattern of the tabernacle that Moses came down and the children of Israel began to build. And so one of the questions that should be asked is, why? Why does Moses, in writing this book, skip that and go right to this? Why does he go right to the story of the tabernacle in Exodus? And it's in other places we find out what happened, that something else happened. Something not so good. There is an answer to it. And this is an ancient Jewish teaching that I want to clue you in on. Because I find it to be very insightful for us who are New Covenant believers. The reason that they say that Moses began now in chapter 25 to talk about the tabernacle, the design of the tabernacle, the making of the tabernacle, was that it was God's intent after he had spoken the commandments to the children of Israel after he was prepared to make the tablets and have Moses come down with them, it was God's intent. Now, this is Jewish sources that are saying this. It was God's intent that he was actually going to make his dwelling place with Israel in their hearts, that he was going to fill the children of Israel 
with the spirit of himself and make his dwelling place in the heart of every one of the sons of Israel. But he didn't do that. And the reason is because of the misbehavior of the children of Israel. We proved we were not worthy of such a dwelling. We proved that our hearts were not ready to have the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God was only appropriate upon prophets and upon leaders as God would anoint, that we were not prepared for such a thing. And so as a result, it is the teaching. Now, this is interesting. This is Jewish teaching now. This is the Jewish sages who teach this, that God had to build a tabernacle, a pattern, a picture, a symbol first, that he had to teach the children of Israel. It's from the heart that we obey the Lord. It's from the heart where the dwelling place should be for God and how we should live and walk before the Lord by that which comes from the heart internally. Now, they, it makes a lot of sense because they, they understand the reality of this. If you're going to change a group of people, you're going to transform them from slaves into free men. It's something that's got to happen from the inside out. If you're going to change this world and make this a peaceful world, a place where we all coexist and we get along with one another, you're going to have to change the people that live in the world. You can't change laws and they have, they have a whole set of laws and that's not going to change the people. Every person has to change inside. And what happened is now we shift to the making of a tabernacle, a substitute. And the way God is trying to teach us, the, what the intent really is here, is the way he now starts us from the, if you will, almost the kindergarten level of spiritual instruction. And he begins this portion in Exodus 25 by the following. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, Purpose skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So God's intent is he wants to dwell with them. But because their hearts are not prepared, he says, let me give some instruction to your heart. Let your heart be moved and let you build a tent, a tabernacle for me, so you can learn. So you can learn from this example from it. And what follows from here is that he then begins to give a very specific pattern. Moses recounts to us now this specific pattern that he's following. In fact, verse 9 says, According to all that I'm going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it according to the pattern. And by the way, the Lord just clued us in on something very interesting about the way the Lord teaches us. If we're not prepared, if we as a people are not ready to receive the instruction of God, if we're not ready to be, go forward and do those things that God ultimately wants to do with us, he has to teach us. Like a father would teach a son. He has to find the right example and set a pattern for and get them to to repeat and to do those behaviors and do and receive the instructions so that they can mature and come to the point. And we now understand that God does make things in patterns so that we might spiritually learn. 
In this particular case, it was clear that God wanted the children of Israel to know and to come to understand that the real dwelling place for God was supposed to be in the hearts of the people. And so what he did was he made, he had a pattern, and he made a tabernacle which he will fill with the Spirit of God, which will be the example to teach Israel that this is the real dwelling place of God within the tabernacle. Now, for us in the New Covenant, we know ultimately where this is going to go. We know that that tabernacle that was in the wilderness will then get brought to Shiloh in the land. And then David, King David, will be raised up. And he'll be moved by the Spirit of God to make a permanent tabernacle, a permanent house for God. And that he will purchase the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite in the location we call the Temple Mount of Jerusalem today. And there he will purchase it. But it won't be David who will be permitted. It will be the son of David who will be permitted to build it. And by the way, who's the real son of David, that that prophecy is speaking of? Messiah Yeshua. It will be Messiah Yeshua who will really make the permanent tabernacle. We call it the tabernacle of David. And that's what the prophecy said, that the Messiah would come and raise up the tabernacle of David, the son of David. He will raise up the tabernacle in the hearts of men in the nations. And that's what happened. The Messiah came, Messiah Yeshua came, and he said specifically of the temple in Jerusalem, tear this place down, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And the disciples tell us in the New Covenant, he was referring to his resurrection. He was referring to something that he was going to do as a result of his death. What? He was going to give the Spirit of God so that it might dwell in the hearts of men. And that's what he did on the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, after his resurrection. Then the sons of Israel did receive the Holy Spirit, and their tabernacles were filled with the Holy Spirit. We we see that whole thing, and today in the New Covenant, our teachers tell us, know you not, you are the temple of God? No, you're not, you're the tabernacle of God? You're the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Children of Israel didn't have that. They had to see a pattern first. They had to be instructed in it first. And we are the benefactors of this instruction. Let me explain to you why, as a New Covenant believer, you should really be interested in this subject. So this is what we would classically call when a teacher gives a motivational statement. I'm going to motivate you to want to learn. All right? This is the motivation statement for you. The reason you want to understand the pattern of the tabernacle and all of the services in the tabernacle, because it's going to explain to you what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. In your faith, your new covenant faith, how God dwells inside of you, how you now worship God from the heart, from in here. Now, we know in our new covenant faith, that's what we want to do. We want to be led by God, right? And we want to obey right from the heart. We want to worship God from the heart. In fact, we, you know, there's a lot of teachers that say, we got to get it out of our head and get it in our heart. We got to get it past our intellectualism. We got to get the spirit of God moving in here. We got to be moved by the spirit. I agree. But if you do not understand the pattern of the tabernacle, if you do not understand the order of service, the courts, the furnishings, and so forth, quite honestly, you're like a blind man stumbling through that place, bumping into things, and you have no idea what it is that is happening. You have no idea where you're at. And you're going to be ignorant, spiritually ignorant. Now, we know that the Messiah has come for the purpose of opening the veil 
so that you and I might have bold access to the very mercy seat of God. But quite honestly, some brethren don't even know what the mercy seat is. They don't know what the holy of holies is or the holy place. They don't know what the furnishings are. They don't know what those things mean or represent. They don't get the pattern. Therefore, they are ignorant in their faith. They're ignorant before God, even though they have these things. It's almost like a, you know, the joke. They talk about the guy that's kind of, you know, not really with us. You know, he's not too smart, you know, and they say, well, the lights are on, but nobody answers the door. You know, he ain't really home. And quite honestly, brethren, I think that's part of what this instruction is about. So that we might have the lights on and we answer the door. We know what's going on. We're aware of who our God is and what it is about. Now, as I mentioned to you before, the first item here, how Moses in teaching us skips that part about the, the golden idol here in Exodus. The fact that he left it out, for those of us who study the Torah, anytime we see something that we know is obvious, a sequence of events, and then he leaves something out, that's as bold as, as if he pointed it out to a special. Now I'm going to walk you through in uh, Exodus 25, and we're going to look in this portion, which is Teruma, and it leads us through to verse 19 of chapter 27. So we're going to begin in Exodus 25, and we're going to go to chapter 27 and verse 19, and we're going to list off essentially seven things, all right? We're going to list off seven specific things that go in the tabernacle, that the tabernacle makes up, and the way I'm going to explain this to you is there's a little mystery here, and we all love mysteries. That gets our attention, right? I want you to get your attention now. I want you to pay attention because something important is getting ready to happen, and I'm going to do it in a very interesting way. In public speaking, we call this stimulus motivation. And one of the most stimulating motivations there is to a public speaker is to stop talking. Did you feel yourself focus? That's what he's going to use here in this technique about the tabernacle. See, it's really, we know there are eight things in there. Eight real specific things in there. And he's going to say, I'm going to show you the pattern. And he's going to skip one. And we know it. We know he skips one, and it's going to beg you to say, why did you skip that, Moses? Just like we jumped here and we skipped, well, this very next portion, he does that to us again. Now, I'm going to list for you here very quickly as we go through the chapter, and I'm going to list off the things he now gives instructions, and we'll read these very briefly as we go through. Verse 10, Exodus 25, he begins to give the instructions for the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, And they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high, and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. You shall make a gold molding around it, and you shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. And you shall put 
it into the ark of the testimony, which I give you, and you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends, and the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and facing one another the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you, and there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give to you in commandment for the sons of Israel. That's just the instruction for the ark, the ark of the covenant. And what will follow and I'm only going to point out a couple of these to you, is the following instructions. And this is the sequence. And let's see if we can catch what he does. He says, I want you to make an ark, an ark of the covenant. It's to be a gold box so high with a lid, with two cherubim angels on top of it. I then want you to make a table, a table for showing bread. It's to be so high, covered with gold. A crown shall be put upon it, and it shall have the bread of presence. I want you to make a menorah, a single lampstand that will have a main branch and that will then have six branches coming out, three on one side, three on the other side. There shall be pairs of these branches. I want you to put so many cups on this one and so many cups on that one and a flower and a bulb. And I want you to make a base and I want there to be lamps at the top, seven of them. And then he says, I want you then to make a sanctuary of a certain structure, of a certain size, that will be a room, a tent, where all these things will sit inside. And then he says, and I want you to make a set of veils, a veil that will separate the ark of the covenant from the rest of the sanctuary, and a screen that shall be, that will separate that from the courtyard. Then I want you to make an altar outside that will set in the altar courtyard. It'll be of bronze and constructed in a particular way. Then I want you to make the courtyard. I want you to make the tent that will go for the outer court. Make all these things. And as we're looking at the sequence, it's very obvious that God is giving us a design pattern that comes from the inside out. And by the way, spiritually, that's how we learn from the inside out. Brethren, if you think that the key to spiritual maturity is by changing your outward behaviors first. I have news for you. That's wrong. The key to spiritual growth must begin from within. It has to begin with, from inside where your will and your intellect is at. Literally where your spirit is at. In fact, if your spirit doesn't get born, and we say born again, if you are not born again from the inside out, then you're not following the pattern and you're going to be sorely disappointed in the end. It's from the inside out. It's from the heart first. It's where you begin. You spiritually grow and mature. And then the outward things are added as you learn, as you walk before the Lord. You have to want to obey the Lord before you can learn what the commandments are. If you just go around replicating the commandments and you're not obeying from the heart, you haven't really kept them. Oh, you've fooled some other people. There's a lot of brethren that are in the Messianic movement today 
who've gone in and they've picked up the buzzwords. Uh, they can mumble a little Hebrew. They keep a little Sabbath. They wear a talit and a kippah. And they look like they are the tabernacle of the Lord. They look like they're one of us. But inside, there's nothing. There's nothing changed. They don't believe. They're just following and replicating the behavior of other people. And there's a lot of Christians in the world running around. They've learned to do that. That's not true. They're going to be sorely disappointed. They're missing it. They're not, they don't have any joy. They're doing things on their own strength. They're going to be, they're going to run out of steam. And I've met a lot of brethren who got involved, got started, and all of a sudden just collapsed sometime after, and they had no inner strength. They had nothing going on inside. They really didn't trust or believe the Lord because those things of the pattern had never happened inside. They'd never had their tabernacle made or filled with the Spirit of God. And as a result, they had all the outward trappings, but they didn't have anything inside. And so the Lord is giving instructions. Do it according to this pattern. And this is like a little object lesson. I call this, I call these God's audiovisual aids, you know, to understand our faith, to learn. Now, there's something missing. Anybody know what it is by chance? There's a piece of furniture missing. There's one missing inside and there's one missing outside. The one that's missing inside is the golden altar of incense. The golden altar. And we won't learn about that until Exodus chapter 30. That won't, that's the only time that will be brought up. In other words, Moses has given us this pattern, but it's obvious he skipped something. It's a little bit like if I were to say to you, brethren, I'm going to give you seven things. One, two, three, five, six, seven. And you went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What about number four, Monty? I mean, you said seven, but you, sk- you skipped something there. I mean, you ought to just really jump up and down and say, what's going on here? It's because that particular object of furniture has a very, very special instruction for you. If we get into the tabernacle, and we will in the future weeks, you're going to find out that's the one about you. That's about you coming into. That happens to be the piece of furniture, the golden altar of incense, happens to be the part where the priest comes in and he does the highest level of worship from that place. You see, in the way the service used to be, in the morning, when they would do the morning offerings, while the priests would come in and they would clean the altar off, and some priests would be designated and they would go in and they would clean the menorah, they'd trim the wicks of the menorah and prepare to light it, light it anew so it would be fresh. They'd check the bread, and on Sabbath there was new bread that was put there. Everything was checked and everything was arranged, and then they got ready, they got ready to put the lamb upon the altar for the morning sacrifice so that everything for the day, the whole worship of God would begin. But there was one priest who would be designated by lots and he would go in and it was his job at that moment to put the incense on the golden altar. And at the moment that he did, there would be a cloud. The incense would hit those coals and there would be a cloud that would go up. A sweet fragrance would go up before the Lord. And at that moment, the lamb went on the altar. Now, the scripture tells us that that fragrance, that incense before the Lord comes into the nostrils of the Lord. And what it's really supposed to be illustrating, the prayers of the saints. That's you and me. That's you and me rendering our highest form of worship to the Lord right there at the mercy seat. 
right before his presence. And it's done in conjunction with the Lamb, that the Lamb has qualified us to come before the mercy seat of God so that we can render our highest moment of worship. But here's this pattern being given to us, and he's decided to leave that part out first because there's something you need to learn. Before you can come in here and put incense on the golden altar, there's something you need to know about this place. Certain things you need to come to terms with. Now I'm going to show you something really fascinating. Um, And I'm showing this to you as New Covenant believers so that none of you get tripped up by my Judaism friends. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. In the book of Hebrews is the New Testament where it's giving similar instruction to what we have here from Moses. In Hebrews chapter 9, he's going to talk about the tabernacle. And these are two New Covenant believers and where he's giving you the instruction. And in Hebrews, what he's telling you is that our high priest, Yeshua the Messiah, is much better than the high priest after the order of the Levites, after the order of Aaron. In that, because they had to go in and do this special service every year, the high priest going in before the mercy seat on Yom Kippur every year, that our Messiah, who is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he has been able to render this service for us in a very special way. In that, he took his blood into and put it on the altar on the one in heaven, not the one in Jerusalem. And that unlike the priests of the order of Aaron, which are a substitutionary system, trying to teach us what our great high priest really was going to do, that we see the pattern so that we would understand what he had done in heaven for us. And in here, in this chapter, uh, the writer of Hebrews is explaining to New Covenant believers, and he's going to review some of the things we've just covered. But I want to show you something that the New Testament says here, and I don't want you to get tripped up by it. I want to give you some instruction about it. Another little mystery for you. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Lampstand, table, this is the holy place. We've already received that instruction. Verse 3, and behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables or tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these we cannot now speak in detail. We speak of them in detail in Exodus He says, let's move on. You know about this stuff. We're going to teach some other things, he says in Hebrews to you. But if you want the details, you've got to go back here to Exodus. This is the teaching of Moses, where he gives us the details of it. Did you catch it in there? Did you catch what the writer of Hebrews said? Let me read it to you again. Verse 3, And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides. The writer of Hebrews says that that golden altar of incense is in here. That's not what Moses said. What Moses will say is that that golden altar of incense sits here on this side of the veil. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, it's in there. Now, my friends from Jews for Judaism would love to trip you up with this verse and show you, see, 
The new covenant has made a mistake. They got it wrong on the tabernacle. They can't even follow the pattern. You see that there? You with the King James Bible, you get something that says after that, kind of infers that it's there. This is one of the places where I really appreciate our Greek scholars, because this is a place where that the writing in the Greek, it just doesn't come out very good in the English. And this is one of the areas where translating from the Greek into the English, we just don't quite get the essence of what's really being said, because there in, in verse 3, where my Bible says behind and behind the second veil, what, what some of the years say? I think some of yours say after, the word after. The, he, the Greek word there is the word meta, and meta means with, or near, or among, or accompanying. And the translators trying to try to find the best way to try to explain that, they, they actually said something here that almost sounds like if you didn't know the instruction of Moses, it almost sounds like that golden altar is sitting in there with the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. Why aren't we talking Holy of Holies? And it's, it's in there. But what it's really trying to teach us here is that as a result of the Messiah, as a result of the work of the Messiah, when he opened the veil that he made that Ark of the Covenant to be right at the mercy seat and that you had access to the mercy seat and nothing separated you anymore. He wasn't trying to redesign the furniture of the tabernacle. He's trying to tell you what the work of the Messiah is. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do, which is, by the way, exactly what Moses tries to tell us. Let me take you back to Exodus chapter 30 so you can see what he says specifically about that golden altar so that you know exactly that that's what the intent is here. Exodus chapter 30, this is next week's portion. Exodus 30, verse 6. This is where he's talking about the golden altar. Listen to what he says of it. And you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. Why didn't he say put the ark of the testimony between the table and the menorah? Because Moses is going to make the teaching of the golden altar for us to understand from the example of the tabernacle that there's a connection between that altar and the mercy seat. And yes, there's a veil in between, but there's a connection there that he wants to emphasize. And so rather than just detailing and just saying, oh, it's there, he leaves it out. So that in Exodus 30, he can teach you and show you, hey, there's a particular place that sits. By the way, I find it uh, really um, ironic amongst uh, the Jewish people, people who study the temple. The Temple Institute people, if you ever go over to uh, Jerusalem, this is the key item that will generate a lot of discussion. Because the Temple Institute people, where they put this golden altar is right here and not there next to the veil. Why? Why do they, you know, they're not following the pattern. Why do they do that? Because they don't get it. They just don't get it. And in their best efforts to try to understand, they don't. it's like they don't get it. They don't see the words. They don't understand the work of the Messiah. They don't understand the work of the high priest and what he's supposed to be doing on Yom Kippur. And they don't understand how, how they're supposed to be connected to God. As a result, there's air. And they shift the symbol and it sends a different message. It's very important that we follow exactly the pattern if we're going to really receive the instruction. 
And I think that this is one of the classic examples of why uh, I want to emphasize Torah to you, and I want to emphasize the specific words of, of Moses to you, because it's going to show you the Messiah the right way. If you get a wrong idea about what Moses said, it's going to foul up your understanding of the Messiah. If you get exactly what Moses said, then you're going to understand exactly what the Messiah said. That's exactly what the Messiah said. Because you don't believe the words of Moses, how will you understand my words? That's what he said to the Jewish religious leaders. Because you don't understand Moses, you're not going to understand me. What he's really saying is, if you really will understand Moses, if you'll pay attention to what Moses, things that I say will make sense. You'll understand what I'm trying to tell you. And these are classics here as far as understanding the pattern. Now, for the rest of this lesson, I want to go just a bit further and uh, I wish I had the time to take you through every one of the furnishings items, but I'm going to home in on what I think are the three most important uh, that we need to really get from this first lesson. The first three things that Moses tells us about the ark, about the table of showbread, and about the menorah. And I want to show you certain things that the scripture tells us about the pattern, the making of them, that will be great counsel for you, that will lead you and keep you from error, and will help you to understand who God is to us, so that in your mind, when you worship God from the heart, from the spirit, you can see it. You can see this pattern. Now, let me just, for the sake of discussion, emphasize the role of pattern one more time. Brother uh, David is an architect. His specialty, his discipline, is that he's the guy that a man wants to build a building. And before he even goes to the ground, or before he goes and buys the materials, he goes to a man like David. He goes to an architect, and he says, David, build me a pattern first. Make me a set of blueprints, a set of drawings, so that, and this is basically what David does, he puts these drawings together, he sets the pattern and then the builders, when they come in, part of his job is to go in and make sure they follow that pattern. And if they'll follow that pattern, they'll build a successful building. But he'll tell you horror stories about when people get away from that pattern and mistakes happen. And it's real important that we understand that pattern and we follow that pattern. And that's what's going to be explained to us. That's what's so emphasized so strongly. And the reason I mention that to you again is because if we look back there in Exodus 25, Moses emphasizes this. I've already read it to you before at the start of chapter 25. See that you do it according to the pattern. And then after he gets through the first three items, that is the ark, the table of showbread, and the menorah, he then says in chapter 25 and verse 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. And the word see there is a very special Hebrew word. Essentially, that's the word in the Hebrew that we use. It's more than what you see with your eyes. See, I want you to see something more than what I see. See that you follow the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. Make sure that that part that you don't necessarily see with your eyes, make sure that part gets through so that you get that too. So there are things in these three objects that he wants us to see other than just physical furniture. The first item, and I've already read the verses to you, has to do with the construction of the ark. 
the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to specifically take note again with me, the subject of the mercy seat, the cover, the lid that goes on that box. Verse 17 of chapter 25 says, And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends, and the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. Did you catch that rather interesting language there? Did you catch it? Their wings upward and covering the mercy seat with their wings. You think Moses is being redundant? There's not an idle word in this book, brethren. Every word means something. He's not being clumsy in his language. The thing that you have to remember here, and this is the thing that always trips up all those guys that claim to have seen the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, we've had a lot of brethren, even in our generation, I've seen the Ark of the Covenant. Really? What did you see? They always make the same mistake. They didn't see it. And if you understood this pattern, you would be wise when you hear these people come and you would say, describe it to me. And they would describe it and you'd go, oh, you didn't see it. You missed it. Cherubim have four wings. Cherubim have four wings. They don't have two wings. They have four wings. And every one of them guys that claim to have seen the Ark of the Covenant and how many of you saw the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember the Ark of the Covenant in that one? Here's the two cherubim sitting on the mercy seat, and they get the wings going forward like this, and the other guy's he's got his wings coming forward. That's not it, brethren. Where's the wings spread upward? I see the two wings going forward covering the seat. Where's the wings upward? Oh, they forgot that part. They forgot their cherubim. Seraphim have six wings. Cherubim have four wings. They have a lot of wings. And that's what Moses said. Wings upward and wings covering, so that the shape of the ark with the cherubim sitting here, they have wings that go upward and they have wings that cover. And as a result, they form a mercy seat in the wings. And that's exactly what God said. I, my presence, will set in the wings of the cherubim. I won't be actually touching the mercy seat. I'll be above it. I'll be sitting in the wings of those angels. And if you don't understand the position of those wings, you don't get it. And if we'll follow the exact pattern, it'll keep us out of a lot of trouble. We've got other gentlemen who've come along and they say, we saw the Ark of the Covenant. Well, where were their wings? Where was, What did the cherubim look by? And the, one of the guys out there, he says, well, uh, he had one wing here on the side and, and one wing on the back, and it looked like a standard American Western chair. Looks like a standard American Western chair, but it don't look like a mercy seat, because that's not what mercy seats look like. Even the Temple Institute, they have a picture of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and they just have the cherubim kind of with their wings up, but covering. Where's the other set of wings? They're cherubim, brethren. Where's the other set of wings? That's not it. You don't see it. You see what I'm trying to say? He said, so that you'll see it without your eyes. Follow the pattern so you see it without your eyes. They're not seeing it. They've been caught up in other simple things. And they missed it. But he wants us to see it the way it works for us. That's the first point I wanted to show you, particularly with the Ark of the Covenant. 
But then he goes on to describe the table of uh, showbread. Let me read the description to you a bit. Verse 23 of chapter 25. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high, and you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make it for a rim as a hand breadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for a rim around it. Did you hear that language? You shall make a rim. You shall make a gold border. It shall be a rim. You know what it actually looks like? A crown. You shall put a crown on that table. Make the table to look like a crown, is what he's saying, by putting the rim on it. You shall make four gold rings for it. Put rings at the four corners, which are at its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as the holders for the poles to carry the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. And you shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour libations. And you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. And in actuality, the way they did this was they made literally two stacks. Because of the amount of surface area, they made two stacks. There were six loaves here and six loaves here. And each loaf of bread represented one of the tribes of Israel. And the bread of presence was there. And in my Bible, uh, they capitalized the word presence. I don't know what they do in your particular Bible, but one of the things that the translators are trying to pass on to you is that it's not just any kind of presence. It's the presence of God. And so they capitalize because it's one of the titles of God. Now, we know God is sitting on the mercy seat. We know the very presence of God is in the Holy of Holies. But he says, God is also at this bread of presence. He's right there. And this is special bread. This doesn't get eaten by other people. Now, what does all that mean? I mean, we have a lot of instruction in the Bible that talks about the mercy seat and the day of atonement. And the, the, What's the deal with the bread? I mean, what's the deal with the, they put the bread in there all week long and they change it out each Sabbath. And why did the Messiah specifically question some men in his day when he said, do you remember when David came up and was hungry and the priests gave to David the showbread, the bread of presence for him to eat? Explain that to me, he said. And they didn't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's not supposed to do that, is he? Well, why did he do that? Why did King David do that? Why was, why was he permitted to do that? I want to read to you a passage, Hertz Commentary, the Hertz Humash. And I'm going to read the portion and his commentary on what we just read from Exodus. And Rabbi Hertz, uh, chief rabbi of the British Empire, I consider the Hertz Humash, this particular one, this is the one I recommend for Torah studies, is one of the best, most well-balanced, Best thought out, doesn't get into Kabbalah and all that mysticism nonsense. I mean, this is pretty straight good stuff. And this is what Rabbi Hertz, the consensus of the Jewish sages, and he wrote this about 1900. I want to read to you what he quotes from one of the greatest of the Jewish sages, Maimonides, and what Maimonides said about this passage of Scripture. 
He's talking about the placing of this bread. It is described in Leviticus 24, 5-9, where it is said to have consisted of 12 loaves of wheaten flour, corresponding in the number of the tribes of Israel. It was placed on the table on the Sabbath, arrayed in two rows, and left there until the following Sabbath. When the loaves were removed, they were eaten by the priests. The symbolic meaning of the showbread is a matter of conjecture. Maimonides confesses. Now, Maimonides is considered one of the greatest rabbis of all time. There's not any rabbi I know of that will take issue with Maimonides. Maimonides confesses, quote, I do not know the object of the table with the bread upon it continually, and up to this day I have not been able to assign any reason to this commandment. This is the temple for the Jewish people. Everything in here has meaning. This is a pattern that comes from, that was given to Moses on the mountain. Everything has a meaning. And the best mind in Judaism says, I have no idea what that means. So you think they got a complete picture? They're confessing. We don't understand it. Brethren, when we came to this service at Arab Shabbat, we did a very traditional thing. We said a blessing over some bread and a cup. And there's a particular way that we're instructed to render the blessing over the bread. For the bread which comes forth out of the earth. That's this bread. The bread which comes forth out of the earth. But there is another kind of bread the Bible talks about. There's a bread which comes forth from heaven. We know which bread that is. It's called the true bread, which our Father gives. In fact, let me take you to a passage of instruction where the New Covenant teaches us about this bread. John chapter 6. Let me begin at verse 25. Oh, excuse me. Let me begin at verse 22. Let me give you the background first of all. This is right after Yeshua was over there and he fed the, fed the thousands. And he took the loaves and he blow, broke them and blessed them and everybody got bread. And man, that was, they had never seen a miracle like that. I mean, everybody got to enjoy that miracle. It wasn't like some guy got healed or some guy got a demon cast out of him or something like that. I mean, everybody got to eat this bread. Do you realize how revolutionary this is? If this guy is here and can feed us every day, he can take uh, two fishes and five loaves and he can feed thousands. Do you understand how powerful that is in the world? And man, they wanted that. In fact, he loaded up on a boat and he went back to Capernaum. They loaded up in boats and they went looking for him. Man, they got in boats and said, where is he at? We want to talk to him. And so it says here, verse 22, the next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Yeshua had entered with his, had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the multitude therefore saw that Yeshua was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Yeshua. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? There was a little mystery. You weren't in the boat. How'd you get here? You can't walk around. It's a little mystery there. And Yeshua answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw signs, because you ate the loaves and were filled. You're after me for the bread. You want more bread. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Yeshua answered and said, And this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
They said, therefore, to him, what then do we do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Yeshua therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. It's not just bread that comes out of the earth that's supposed to be on the table. It's the bread of presence. It's the bread that comes from God that gives life. The table of the showbread is the symbol of the Messiah, the true bread from heaven. The mercy seat is the symbol of our Father. But the table of showbread is the presence of God in the form of the Messiah. Remember that crown that had to be made around the rim? Because he's the king and he has a crown. It's the place of the king. And he's the true bread from heaven that if you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. That bread is always there. You're never going to go hungry. You always have this bread. That's what it's trying to illustrate. And our rabbi brethren in Judaism, they don't understand it. Here he is explaining, I'm the true bread from heaven. Your fathers gave you manna. You didn't know what it was. Now here I am and you don't know what I am. To this day, the sages are still looking at that table of bread saying, what is it? What is it? It's manna. It's true bread from heaven. It's the symbol of the true bread from heaven. That's always with us, that we're never hungry if we eat of it. King David, why was he permitted to eat of it? He's the king and the son of David is illustrated by it. And that's what Yeshua was trying to... Why is it that David would be permitted? Because it's the symbol of the son of David, is what he was trying to get them to understand. It's about me. That's why. He's trying to find every way possible for us to understand this little symbol, this pattern, so we'll understand his words, so we'll understand his purpose, his ministry to us. Now we come to another piece of furniture. The third, the menorah. Turn with me back to Exodus 25 again. Beginning at verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in one branch and a bulb and a flower. And three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for the six branches going out from the lamp and in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. And a bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it. For the six branches coming out of the lampstand, their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece. With it, all of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it, and its snuffers and its trays shall be made of pure gold, and it shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. Very detailed description. And the basic menorah has a basic lampstand, and it comes up, and then it says it has 
six branches to the sides. Three on one side, three on the other side. So I'm going to make that. And for those listening to the tape, this is a facsimile of a menorah that will end up with seven total lamps. It's a menorah. Everybody's seen a menorah. We know what a menorah looks like. But then it goes through a description of about bulbs and almond blossoms, some very decorative things, and goes into it. But the thing that the sages have noticed here is the number of bulbs is real interesting. It says that in each branch there shall be three bulbs with its flower. And so I'm going to put a bulb here and a bulb here and a bulb here. Just I'm not trying to make it artistic. I'm just putting three in that branch. And then it says on the other branch, on the other side, a bulb, a bulb, and a bulb. And it says in each one of those side branches, those three bulbs, a bulb, a bulb, a bulb, a bulb, a bulb, and a bulb. Same thing here, here, and three here. And then it says in the lampstand, there should be four. There should be four bulbs. So I have a bulb here. And then he says one under the first pair, another one under the second pair, and another one under the third pair. So I now have four bulbs in that center piece, and I have three in the branches. The total number of bulbs on this side is nine. The ones in the middle are four. And the total on that side is nine. For a total of how many? Twenty-two bulbs. Well, stand by, brethren, because the number 22 has tremendous meaning in Scripture from here on out. Because that number is going to be used by God to try to explain to us God's perfect judgment. God's perfect judgment. Judgment based on full and complete knowledge. That his judgment is wise, complete, not like a man. That he judges not with just eyes, but that he's able to see. And actually what we're also going to find in the scripture is there's a parallel of the seven lamps to the seven spirits of God. That this is somehow illustrating the seven spirits of God. And uh, if you will turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, where the prophet describes those seven spirits to us. Isaiah chapter 11. And the reason why that we know that this passage of scripture is stimulated from things in the temple is because if you go back to Isaiah, when you first start reading about Isaiah from about chapter 6 on, it says that he saw a vision, that he was in the temple, and based on the furnishings and the artistic things in the temple, that he saw something. Specifically, there used to be in the temple, above the veil, there used to be the picture of the seraphim. And so when he just starts describing his vision before the throne of God, he's using the furnishings that are inside of the temple. Because the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle, is a picture of the throne of God. And Isaiah is going to give us a view of the throne of God from the top down, starting with the seraphim to the throne. Ezekiel will give us another picture of the throne of God from the bottom up, of which he'll describe the cherubim to us. You remember the cherubim? The cherubim that are on the mercy seat? He describes the cherubim up to where God is sitting. That's Ezekiel. And then John, 
in the book of Revelation is going to describe the throne of God straight on to us in chapters 4 and 5. And you integrate what Isaiah has seen and what Ezekiel has seen. You're going to see something real interesting about the throne of God. You see all the dimensions of God from the top, from the bottom, and straight on. You get three-dimensional view of the throne of God. But here specifically Isaiah, in the context of seeing the throne of God, he points out something about the menorah. And here's what he says. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did I say it was about the menorah? Because this thing is constructed like it's a tree with branches. He saw some branches and something clicked. And he says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. We're talking about the Messiah now. The spirit of the Lord will rest on the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he just described the seven spirits of God. Did you see the list there? First, there's the spirit of the Lord. And then the branches have these other six spirits. And he puts them in pairs, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. By the way, that's the construction of the menorah, in pairs. You shall make the first pair, the second pair, the third pair. So there'll be seven lights when we get done, but they were constructed as pairs. And so he describes the Spirit of God the same way. This is a picture of the Spirit of God. More specifically for us, if you want to understand the Holy Spirit, it's the picture of the Holy Spirit. The mercy seat is of the Father. The table of showbread is of the Messiah. This is of the Holy Spirit. And when you walk into the tabernacle, you're standing in the presence of all of God. All of God. And when you walk in that golden altar and you offer up your prayers, you're surrounded by God. You're in the midst of God. In fact, if I'm from the mercy seat, if I have the Father, I look out upon you. I see this altar here. I see you at this altar. And I see you flanked by my Son and by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's exactly what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that the Son is to bring you to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is to woo you and draw you into God. And since it's truth that we're looking for, God sees you confirmed by the evidence of two others. And He says, truth, this is real, you hear. And the Son, when He sees you, He's looking there at you and he sees the Holy Spirit on one side of you and his Father on the other side. And the Holy Spirit sees you and he sees the Father on one side of you and he sees the Son on the other side of you. And all three parts of God see you confirmed before God when you walk in to that golden altar of incense. When you offer your prayers up before God, you're surrounded by God. That's what you're supposed to see when you go in there. Now, here's the interesting part. I'm going to, dip, I'm going to draw for you these seven spirits, I'm going to show you some amazing things that this pattern gives to us. First of all, let's confirm the 22 bulbs here. This is about how God judges. And the, the Messiah who's received all seven spirits of God, and you can read there in Revelation 1, when, the, when John turned around, he saw the Messiah, one like the Son of Man, standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands with the seven spirits of God, with seven stars in his hand. He saw the Messiah in the midst of the menorah. And what it says here, Isaiah is saying to us about the Messiah, the reason why he's the Messiah, the reason why he's the ruler, is because of his judgment. He doesn't judge like a man. Read the rest of the verse. Verse 3, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. 
and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked, and the righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The reason why the Messiah is the Messiah is because he has all the spirits of God. He has them all, and therefore his judgment is right and true. Now let's talk about what the spirits of God do for us. I'm going to make a, a list here, and we're going to do it kind of the Hebrew way. In other words, I'm going to go right to left. That Hebrew, we go right to left. We read and write right to left. So we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to put the Spirit of the Lord in the center, because we know that's the main branch of the Lord. That's the main branch. And then going to the right, the first spirit that's listed for me is the Spirit of Wisdom. Wisdom. The next one he lists is understanding. Understanding. Counsel. The next one is called might or strength. And the next one is called knowledge. And then the last one is the fear of the Lord. Now, from the standpoint of these pairs, they're giving in the highest order down to the lowest order. So let me tell you one of the patterns that comes up this way. And this is called the spiritual instruction pattern. The first thing that we have to do, and you do this with your children, the first thing you're going to do, the first level when you're going to teach them about God, is that you have to teach them about two things. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You have to teach them that. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the lowest level. The pair is knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The first thing you have to do is give them basic knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in little children, what we do is we start off with things like colors, numbers. And we also, at the same time, explain to them about obeying. And you're going to get in trouble if you don't obey. We teach them the fear of dad. That's one of the first instructions we tell our children. We teach them about colors and numbers and words and letters, and we start giving basic knowledge, but we also teach them at the same time you're going to obey too. Okay? Then the next level that we do as they grow up is counsel and strength. In other words, they get stronger. They, they get a little strength, and we offer counsel to them. Well, you, you really should do this and, and not do that. And with teenagers, we're always trying to give them counsel to go along with their getting big, strong bodies. Take my counsel. And again, parents are always a little frustrated because their teenagers don't want to take their counsel. And then the last thing in the growth pattern is wisdom and understanding for them to become wise and understand. And the pattern is that's how we grow. That's how we mature from the bottom up, just like the menorah is listed there by those branches. But if I take the sequence like this, those pairs, now that I've put in that sequence, there's a matrix that goes this way across, and it describes three types of men that we know in the scriptures. One of the type of men we know is a man called a wise man. And he's a guy who receives the spirit of the fear of the Lord and the spirit of wisdom. How many of you have heard this verse? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see the picture? The next one is knowledge and understanding. That's the man we call the man of understanding. That was like Daniel. He was a man of understanding. He wasn't a wise man. He was a man of understanding. And of him, it says, with your knowledge, gain understanding. That works. Wise counsel from the Lord. And finally, the last one, strength and counsel, is the spirits that are put upon kings. The king, the might of the king, is known by the number of his counselors, and the strength of his forces. That will determine a great king. If he has very few counselors, he'll make too many mistakes. If he doesn't have enough strength, 
of his armies and so forth, he'll not have enough strength. And so it says of the spirits of God that those that's what's given to a king, the spirit of counsel and strength. And throughout time, we have watched God at various times give his spirits to certain men. Like Solomon, he was going to receive the counsel, the spirit of counsel and strength. But he said, I have another request. Could you give me the spirit of wisdom? And he got the spirit of wisdom and it made him a totally different king from all other kings. The wisest king that ever was. Because he had those spirits that kings had, but he also had the spirit of wisdom. He was like a wise man. And his judgment was improved in every case. Because with the giving of these spirits, it improves your judgment. Because all these bulbs, these 22 things are about judgment. Your ability to make wise decisions. And if you're missing some of these things, it's going to be missing in your judgment. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to lead us into all truth. To show us the better way, so that we might have a spiritual judgment to know that which is best and better in the things of the Lord. Now, we go to God for mercy and forgiveness. We go to the Messiah to have the bread that will never be hungry from again. We go to the Holy Spirit so that our judgment might be sure and correct in how we live. Those pictures, those patterns are there so that we can be properly introduced to God. Because that's what he said. Using these things, a man is going to come in before me and we're going to do business together at that golden altar. And you need to know who I am because I'm going to do business with you. And you're going to do business with me. What's really set for us in these things, and by the way, this is just a, a foretaste. I, I, I wish I had the time, and I myself admit that I'm still studying a lot of this. The 22 thing, boy, that goes through all of Scripture. I have seen studies, some very interesting studies, of where they've taken all of the books of the Bible, and the 21st chapter of every book, the 21st verse of every book, is about judgment, critical judgment upon God's enemies. And the 22nd one and the 22nd verse or 22nd chapter is about the judgment of the Messiah in the kingdom. And I've seen some of these, this is fascinating stuff. This 21-22 thing about the judgment, the judgment of the Messiah 22 in the kingdom, which is illustrated here, it just goes through all of the scripture. You can, you can run a thread through scripture and find this theme. It's just amazing. And any time you find something where the number 22 is at, it's always about judgment, proper judgment. It's just amazing the way God did this. And he said, I am showing you a pattern, Moses. Make sure you follow the pattern because you'll see things that eyes don't see. Our God is that wise. Our God is that smart. And there is so much to learn here in the tabernacle that would help us tremendously, to see down inside here where we never get to see, to see where God's presence is at, what he's doing and what he wants us to see and understand and be a part of. So this is kind of a foretaste to get us started. And what we're also going to find in the rest of Exodus here is this is going to get repeated for us a couple of times, the, the, the plan to construct and the actual construction. And we're going to find Moses repeating it over and over and over. And it's like 
I'm li- like in kindergarten class, and and it's like the teacher saying, "Okay, let's say our ABCs. Let's do it again. Let's let's sing to it. Let's sing the ABCs. Let's let's do them frontwards. Let's do them backwards." And so we'll learn the ABCs, and that's what Moses is going to be doing to us with the tabernacle, because these are God's audiovisual aids to explain the faith to us to get it. If you skip the ABCs, brethren, in life, you will not be able to read. If you can't read, you won't be able to receive the Torah or the Bible. And if you don't get the Torah and the Bible, you're going to miss out on a whole lot of God. How many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. You mean there's 22 pieces to the structure of that particular language, just like the menorah, so that the menorah will illuminate us and light up the knowledge of God in our life, and we got to come to terms with those 22 letters in that language so that we might be illuminated with the Torah. That's just a little foretaste. There's a whole bunch of them like that. Just just amazing, you know, what the Lord's done here in doing that. The thing that I would uh, want to encourage you with, brethren, tonight as we enjoy our Sabbath, is that God has set before us a whole series of patterns. And there are more patterns than just the pattern of the tabernacle. The more we can learn about these patterns, the more we're going to get instructions from the master architect of life. And if we'll build according to those patterns, if we'll follow according to those patterns, something wonderful will come into being. If we depart from the pattern, we're going to make mistakes. We'll have error. We'll misunderstand. See, I already know that you, brethren, have a sense of the Messiah and have a sense of the new covenant and have a sense of this coming together. But I would like, if you would this evening, as we kind of close our Torah portion, you know, my heart goes out to Maimonides and my heart goes out to my Jewish brethren who don't understand the table of showbread, who don't understand the bread of presence, who don't understand the true manna from heaven. They're still saying, what is it? And they've not taken a taste of it. And they still haven't learned the lesson of the whole Exodus, the whole lesson of the Torah, because the whole lesson of the Torah, it's summarized for us there in Deuteronomy 8, so that we might learn... The man does not live by that bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God does a man live. There's another type of bread. That's the bread we're supposed to be eating. That's good bread, but there's something more. And that's what the Torah is trying to teach us. And it's illustrated for us in all these patterns and all these pictures. And I would hope that we would soon see the day that my brethren would be able to answer the question, what is the table of showbread for? And they would be able to answer the question, what is this bread that comes from heaven? Instead of saying, what is it? They'll recognize who it is. And they'll listen to the words of Yeshua when he describes himself. Let's pray. Father, tonight, as, as you've shown us again the pattern, the pictures of the tabernacle, thank you, Lord. We know the bread of presence that we've tasted of the true bread that comes from heaven, that for us, Lord, we don't call it, what is it? We know it's our Messiah, the true bread from heaven. Thank you, Lord, that we've had a taste of it. But Lord, I lift up all Israel to you. I lift up all the people who are ignorant of the pattern, who don't understand what you've tried to do and what you've tried to illustrate and how you've tried to manifest yourself and show yourself. And I ask, Lord, even though you've done all these wonderful things and you manifested yourself wonderfully for us, I still ask, Lord, would you continue, please, Lord, to manifest yourself even more so? 
so that even our brethren who hold to this tabernacle, who know not its meaning, that they would come to the knowledge of the real bread from heaven. And that, Lord, that we in this assembly, as we come and we enjoy the challah of the Sabbath and the cup, that it would be a reminder to us, Lord, these are the things of earth. But the real bread that we give the blessing to is the bread that comes from you. And the real drink that we drink of is the cup of redemption. And these are symbols, but to remind us and to point us to you so that we might truly understand, to know, to have the knowledge of you. Lord, that you might fill us and illuminate us inside of our tabernacles by your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth and instruction. That your spirit, like the light in the tabernacle, would fill us and that we would properly come before the mercy seat. And that when we come to worship you, Lord, when we come to pray before you, that we would see ourselves and understand that what's happening in our heart is like that priest who takes that sweet incense and drops it on that altar. And that sweet cloud comes up before your nostrils. And that we would know and sense and have a confidence before that mercy seat, knowing that we have been well received. And that what we're asking for and petitioning you We have confidence before you in all the matters of life that we'll trust you and that you'll be a surety for us. Help us, Lord, to see the pattern. Help us, Lord, to be disciplined, to follow the pattern in our thinking, in our instruction, in our growth, in our walk before you. To not skip by the ABCs of our faith, but to learn every part so that our instruction is sure and complete. So that, Lord, the Torah, the teaching will have its full impact on our life and that it will lead us to a fuller and complete knowledge of the Messiah and the indwelling presence of God and that our tabernacle will be truly filled by the very glory and presence of God and we'll be able to worship you from the heart with knowledge, with understanding, with wisdom, with counsel, with strength, with the fear of the Lord, with the very Spirit of God that you'll have your full and complete say in our life. And we ask this, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, brethren. More to look forward to. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.